From his landmark days with the Imperials throughout his solo career and the seasons with the Gaither Vocal Band, Russ has always delivered an unmistakable passion for singing about God's love. About three years ago, the GMA Dove Awards gave me a Lifetime Achievement Award, and then last year they put me in the Gospel Music Hall of Fame. I bowed my head and, and I began to weep. And Tori asked me on the way home, she said, why, why were you crying? It was such a night of celebration. And I said, Tori, if it hadn't been for Jesus, I wouldn't be standing up there. I'd probably be dead the way I was going. And I said, Tori, if anybody should get that award, it should be you and Jesus. Because I know me. And the greatest thing I've learned is how much he loves me. Be kind to one another, love one another, care for one another. I'm so proud to be a gospel singer and to sing about the one who makes all things new. Hey, Rustaf. <laughs> hey, Pastor Drew. So I've been so afraid that... Um, our conversation this morning would look um, more like Chris Farley um, on Saturday Night Live than actually something that would be a blessing to people, but there's going to be potential of that. I'm just going to lay it out there before we get going, because it's the rest half. You remember the time? Yeah. You're with the Imperials. You remember that? It was awesome. Um, so... Russ Taff, six Grammys. Six Grammys, 18 Dove Awards. And do I remember you were inducted into the GMA Hall of Fame not once, right? Not once. Not twice. He's been inducted to the GMA Hall of Fame three times, Gospel Music Hall of Fame, three-time inductee. I didn't even know that was a thing. Well, I, I was inducted with the Imperials, okay. and then uh, I was inducted with the Gaither Vocal Band, okay. and then I was inducted two years ago for my music. So. Of course. I'm sorry. I'm still <laughs> geeking out here. I'm not sure how to do this here. So um, Russ is the voice, isn't he? One of the, uh, we're excited tonight for the concert. I hope you can come back at 7. Uh, one of the guys in the band made a comment, you know, that I think is appropriate when he said, you know, for some people who listen, grew, grew up listening to, uh, you know, secular music, they have their, their rock stars that they loved and that they listened to and that they just idolized. He said, for us that grew up in the church and listened to Christian music, Russ is like Sting or Peter Gabriel or Elvis or, or better, actually, than all those people. But... Uh, it's just so awesome to be uh, with you, Russ, and for you to be with us today at South City. We, we love you, man. We're so excited for the day. I uh, first heard Russ's music when I was in college. I didn't grow up with it. I grew up on secular music like Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Prince, and Van Halen. And, and uh, I know when we got in my dad's car, it was B.J. Thomas and uh, Kenny Rogers. It was a, so I grew up as a musical mutt. And I, th I think that's one of the things that attracted me to Russ is he's kind of the same way. He's not put down a foot in either camp, any direction. You're kind of all over the place. 
the fact that I learned that you grew up in Hot Springs kind of connected me as well because we're sort of in this musical mashup of styles and genres. And so, uh, and not to mention he had the best mullet in CCM. <laughs> the best. Stephen Curtis Chapman's was good, and I followed both of them, but um, I don't know what happened there. But um, Russ, I, you know, I, of course, I got introduced to your music in college, and it, and it became very special to me. Uh, and even as a singer, um, I was just blown away with your anointed voice. But the thing that, um, that I, I love most about you is um, the way you allow the Lord to just minister to your heart and it comes through your life, it comes through your songs, it comes through your music. And there's no doubt that in my family, if I'm just talking about my own family, I think we all probably have, or most of us, a lot of us in here have stories of your music and how they've been, the songs have been healing for us. But just in my family, just in this front row of people here, my wife right here and her brother sitting right there, um, you know, many of us grew up listening to your music in times that were very difficult. And just in their example, you know, they were going through, their family was going through a divorce. Um, and just the music that they would play from the Imperials, from you, was just such a healing, honest thing. Is it, is it hard to represent you, that kind of that conduit for God's healing? I know people attach, you know, when, when you say Russ Taft to my family, they go, oh, it just takes them to this deep spiritual place because of how the Lord used you and your music to help heal some brokenness in their lives. Is that a strange thing for you to kind of be that conduit of God's healing through music? How has that been for you? Well, it, um, I'm, I'm flattered. I mean, you know, for God to use me that way, I, 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 I'm very uh, thrilled. But you got to remember back when I joined the Imperials in 1976, there was no social media, there right. no cell phones, and, and you would play one city, get on the bus, go to another city, get on the bus and go to another city, and you didn't know what was happening. You know, you would feel the presence of Jesus when you would do songs, and and uh, the Pentecostals, I could pick them out because they act like they were getting blessed. Yeah. And so I focused a lot on them. Right, sure. Uh, the Presbyterians, I knew they were alive when they would blink. Right. You know, it was like they're, they're alive. But I, I, I didn't know, you know. I was just singing from my heart and songs that moved me and, and songs that I wrote. Um, the whole deal was between me and Jesus because I, you know, I didn't know mm -hmm. what, what was happening out with the people. But I knew that if I felt the anointing of God, that they would too. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I knew that. But I, I didn't know what was happening in you. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't know what was happening with anybody. And through so, most of those years when I was younger, I was dealing with pain, mm -hmm. you know, trauma from my childhood, and I would write songs about it and uh, reach out for help from God and begging mm -hmm. him to help me uh, because I didn't know what to do. I, I just didn't know what to do with this pain and uh, these negative voices from my childhood. I, I, I didn't know how to deal with it. I mean, I fasted and I prayed and, 
you know, all the things they told me to do, but it didn't quite the voices. Mm -hmm. And when I mean, I mean voices, and, and we're going to skip around, you know, some of these questions, but growing up in that Pentecostal home where daddy was a very charismatic preacher, very charismatic, and, and it was old line Pentecost, about 25 people in the church, and most of them uh, were family members, which means they fought all the time. Um, but that whole thing of shame and guilt, they thought they were doing God a favor by making you feel guilty, that you weren't doing it better. And I remember dad preaching and crying and, and yelling and saying, we gotta do better, we gotta do better. But he didn't tell us how to get better. He didn't tell us, he would just say, we need to get better. And, uh, and so you go to church and you're embarrassed with things that you've done that you know you would be condemned by these folks. Mm -hmm. And you knew that, uh, that, that they would shame you if they knew what was really going on inside and you had to act like everything was great when it wasn't. And so growing up in that little church with that condemnation, and, and I, I mean, it was no, no, no newspapers, no magazines, no radio, no TV, no nothing. Um, if it had any contact with the outside world, it was wrong. And growing up, I remember, uh, you know, my older brothers got it worse than me, but, you know, uh, I, I remember girls in the church, they, they, they couldn't dress for gym because they were supposed to wear dresses. I mean, I mean, it was, and none of the ladies shaved their legs. <laughs> no makeup, and God, they needed it so bad. Um, but, and so me and my cousin Kenny, we, we would date the Baptist girls across town because they look good. Uh, <laughs> but I remember even as a child, you know, like seven, eight, nine, I would spend the night with my cousin and they were Baptist. Um, but Saturday morning, I would watch Hopalong Cassidy or The Lone Ranger. And I enjoyed it so much, but I promised Weekend after weekend after weekend after weekend after weekend, I would go down to the front of the church on Sunday morning and repent and feel guilty about watching it and feel guilty about enjoying it. Mm -hmm. You know, I loved, I mean, those old westerns when you were a kid and there is no media outside at all. You, you just live in this cocoon waiting for Jesus to come back. So anything pulling you in any kind of direction, you had to fight it. And, you know, when, you're, when you are maturing and your hormones are starting to scream at you, um, you know, they really made you feel guilty about that. Um, trying to figure out this whole sexual thing that we never talk about in the church. Um, you know, it was just shame. Uh, my parents made me feel shame as I would begin to feel things and, and uh, you know, my body uh, maturing as it was. And so uh, everything around you, you felt shame. Um, but yet I loved Jesus. I, I, I mean, I really did. I really did. And you'll ask me a question yeah. about that later. Well, we, we hear in your, you know, one of the things I was going to say was, 
loving your music so much, you know, and singing along to every word, but sometimes not allowing those words to sink deep into your spirit and your soul and really pay attention to what's going on, you know. And I think it's been since the, the documentary even, as I've gone back and I'm listening to old music going, oh my gosh, I'm hearing songs completely differently than, I've, than I heard them before. And I'm, as a songwriter, I'm so thankful for the way that you shared even from your soul through those songs back then. You know, um, a counselor friend told me one time, we, we were just talking about this in the green room as artists, some of the head games that we play and some of the junk that goes into our souls and, and the struggles that we deal with. And this counselor told me one time, he said that the human soul was never meant to receive applause. Right. Isn't that interesting? The human soul is never meant to receive applause. Only God is meant to receive applause. So it eventually does something to our souls. And I think for me, my career as an artist, my dream as an artist, my, my hope um, became toxic and it became more about me and about this sort of an idol that I kind of created uh, of what I wanted to become as opposed to what God wanted to do in my life. And, and I think it's interesting, you kind of talk a little bit about uh, some of those struggles in the film. I want to look at a clip real quick from there. And the winner is Walls of Glass, Russ Cap. I'm very glad that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for me. Yeah, my first solo record wins a Grammy. I said, I'm so grateful that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for me, and the Pointer Sisters and a bunch of them not there, <laughs> and, wonder. you know, we started whooping. All the ones who grew up in church. And then I walked back to my seat and sat down, and James Brown was right in front of me. <laughs> And he turned around and goes, I like what you said. <laughs> Jane Brown. Uh, Gospel Music Association gave me a Dove Award for Best Male Singer. Gospel Music Male Vocalist of the Year, Russ Taft. And I won it three years in a row, and that was like, that was my goal. You know, if I could just do that, then I'd make my mark, and I'd be happy. I, I said that... that uh... 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for me, but I'd like to continue tonight and say that he arose from the dead and that he reigns on high, and I praise him. I wasn't happy. It didn't make my life good. When uh, I began to win awards, I'd set up this whole scenario in my head that if I do this, then it'll produce this. And then when it wouldn't happen, I would rage. I'd like to thank my wife, Tori, that has been an inspiration and has let me follow my heart and dream, and then it became hers too. And then you win, and you still are empty. And God, where are you? My father's watching in uh, California, and I just want to say, Dad, I love you, and because of you, I'm here. He's a minister and been preaching the gospel for 30 years. My mother taught me how to sing, and I sang my first solo when I was three. You get the awards. You know, I've had them over the years, the Grammys, American Music Award, the However Made Dove Awards. It wears off, you know, it doesn't last. And eventually everybody will forget the show because it doesn't fill the void. You think it will. It's a, it's a never ending cycle that will suck the life out of you. It's awful to win awards and you don't feel worthy and you come home and you're still void and empty on the inside. I think at some point you realize those dreams and those things, they don't satisfy your soul. That only Jesus is the one who satisfies. He's the only one who can, you know? And, and when we chase those things so much, at least when I've chased those things, um, it's like I'm running from something 
yeah. you know, to, to something else just to, to get attention over here so not pay attention over there. And, you know, you and Tori have been so incredibly vulnerable. Tori uh, is his wife. And in the film, I don't know if we mentioned this for those of you that don't know, uh, forgive me for not saying it before. Russ had a documentary come out this past fall, what, Pat, October. September, October. And um, it was a great documentary. It played in 700 and something theaters around the country. And they share their story. He and his wife, Tori, share their incredibly vulnerable story about not only uh, his past and his struggle with alcoholism, uh, but his recovery and his marriage as a result of all that. And you guys have been so incredibly vulnerable to share all of those things just to remind us that we're all human. And you, you kind of alluded to secrets in your home, secrets, some struggles that you had gone through. I was going to ask you this question. Do you think that the dysfunction of those things, obviously in the past, did, um, did some of those things kind of cause you to try and want to prove something as an artist in some way? Absolutely. Uh, I, my, my dad was an alcoholic and a Pentecostal preacher. So one year would be in church or six months and then he would relapse and uh, they would vote us out. Uh, and it was a small little church and nobody wanted to pastor it. Uh, but daddy had built it with a couple of guys and, and they it was an old washeteria and they took the washing machines out and painted it white and called it Eastside Tabernacle and started church. Um, but when I was seven, I didn't know that my dad had been an alcoholic before he uh, became a Christian, and he didn't show up for church. I was seven, and uh, mom sends me home to uh, check on him. And I heard the strangest noise coming from the back bedroom where he and mom slept, and it, it sounded like a foreigner, somebody I didn't know, and they were singing and slurring. Um, and I go back there and I see this person that, that is incoherent and just singing to himself and it scared me so bad because it was like a demon had taken over my dad. And I ran back and I got mom and when she walked in, she just burst into tears because he had, had, he had been sober seven years and he was a welder and burned himself real bad and they put him on some heavy narcotics to ease the pain and back then they had no idea what would happen with that and so immediately when the pain pills ran out he started drinking again which started a lifelong struggle that he never conquered. Um, and so, uh, but I remember at seven when they voted daddy out and then when I was 13, 12, 12, um, you know, you, you uh, uh, let me just explain a few things and you might have to hurry me along because this could take a while. The documentary is an hour and 45 minutes and I promise we won't be here that long. But, um, but um, mom sent me down to the church when, uh, I was 12, they were going to vote daddy out and she wanted to know what was going on in there. And so she sent me down to sit and listen to these people talk about dad and, and start impeachment hearings or voting him out or whatever. And, and they were talking about my dad in a way and the sickness of addiction in a home is that you all protect the secret. 
and you don't talk outside the family. One of the worst beatings I ever got in my life, because you're supposed to be perfect, is that my mother, uh, my my older brother, we there were two boys in, in another family in the church about the same ages as my older brother and me. And I told my little friend that my mother had an argument with dad. They had argued. And when I got home, my older brother had told mama I said that. And she was waiting for me. Mm. And... She beat the ever-loving crap out of me to the point I was balled up in the corner in the fetal position with her kicking and screaming and kicking and screaming. You don't know. You don't tell anybody what goes on in this family. You don't tell anybody what goes on in this family. And I didn't. You know, even though there were things going on, like when I was 11, when the addiction is going on in a home, um, it was like the whole family unit. It, it's like they have to crunch and move to keep it working somehow. And everything feels weird and everything's out of joint. But you try to keep some kind of family going. And so at that church, they voted daddy out. And all I knew, I tried to pay, play sports. I wasn't good at it. I mean, you're a big, tough guy. You probably did great. But I was slow and short. And there's not a lot of sports that you can excel in with those gifts. Uh, but the next Sunday night, my whole deal was I learned how to play guitar. And there was always time in that little church that I could sing a song with my guitar. And that was like my only escape from the chaos in my life was just being able to learn a song and sing at the church and so I showed up after they, the week after they voted dad out and I got my little uh, guitar in its little cardboard case and I'm walking into the church and my uncle stopped me he had taken over pastorship and, and he said Russ we don't, don't go inside and I said Uncle Kenneth I didn't do anything wrong he said I know but you're a son and we don't want you here either and the shame of that, that transferred shame, mm -hmm. that there was something ugly about daddy and it was on me too. Mm -hmm. And daddy smelled real bad and so I smelled real bad. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it broke my heart. And there was so much anger and rage inside of me, but you can't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, when, when, there's, when there's addiction in a home, uh, like I said, the family kind of moves and, and, and works its way to where they, at least you can function a little bit and keep eating every day. Mm. Um, but mama chose me, and I don't know why. I had three older brothers, but they call it covert incest. It's not physical touching, but you take a child like you would a spouse to talk about adult things because she couldn't talk outside the family either. And so we, we, uh, she chose me. It started when I was 11, and it went through till I left home at 17. But she would come into my bedroom late at night. Dad's drunk in the back. And I would have to sit up on the side of my bed, and she would start dumping on me. We're probably not going to have lunch money next week for you kids. Uh, we're going to lose the house. We, we can't. We don't have the money with him drunk. He doesn't get paid, and we can't you know, get by on just my salary. She worked in the fields and, and uh, uh, manual labor. Um, and she would talk to me about their sex life. 
I had no idea what sex was, but she would just dump and cry and dump and cry. And then she would feel better. And she would go back to bed. She got that all out. But I'm, you know, I'm 11, 12, 13, 14, and I've got to sit there and hold all of this inside of me. Mm-hmm. And there is terror. Mm-hmm. There is just terror, and there's no security anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that constant, and Daddy, by the time I was 12, and I really started understanding the gift and the Holy Spirit, and how to sing with the anointing. And, but dad was a narcissist. It was like me and my brothers, we never had birthday parties because uh, mom and dad both worked and she said they didn't have time. But the church always threw daddy a birthday party every year. And, uh, and on our birthdays, they would just say, I'm so sorry, but we are both working so hard and we don't have time to, to throw a party for you. Mm. And so again, that just says you're not worth it. Right. You're not worth anything. Um, you know, the, the, the film does such a good job of showing kind of some of the brokenness in, in your past, in your, in your family. And I, I want to show it just because I think there's a lot of our folks that can identify with those kind of stories. And uh, anyway, can we just show that clip and give them a little background on some of the things that you're talking about? Daddy was a Pentecostal preacher, he spent years pastoring a church and preaching, but uh, he was also um, had uh, some real problems that, that just plagued him his whole life. What was your relationship like with him when he was alive, Russ? It, it was uh, distant. So I was converted back in Missouri, and of course I never went to church at that time. I didn't care anything about church. And Sunday night, it happened, and I don't know how. But there I went and repented. Dad would relapse, and I mean, it would be like a stick of dynamite was put under our house, and it would just explode. I used to stand up and witness in church, you know, just. And one night, the, the preacher, the pastor of the church, asked me to preach on a Saturday night. And I had never preached, you know. And, Kind of a little fried over. And the rough ways uh, shall be made smooth. And he preached the hard gospel that no one could live up to. And he couldn't live up to it. And how hard it is uh, to live a Christian life. Uh, let me tell you something. Uh, and Dad would preach and work hard. And, and on Sundays, he would go visit the sick, uh, go pray for people in the hospital. And then he would just disappear. Dad would go out and park his truck and drink until he passed out. And sometimes he'd be gone two, three days. And so we would have to go out and try to find him. And we would bring him home. And it was so scary. He turned into somebody I didn't know. He called Mama all kind of names. And I used to take my younger brother. We had bunk beds and I would push him up against the wall and I would get in front of him. So because we were so scared Dad was going to come in there. We didn't know what to do because we could hear him just slurring and cussing. It, it was like this stranger came into our home that was violent, and it wasn't my dad. When I started really shining, he got jealous. It started a dance between he and I till I left home that when I would do real well and the Holy Spirit would move, he would emotionally punish me where he wouldn't 
even acknowledge me for a couple of days. I had spent the night with a friend of mine from the church, and I told my friend that my parents had an argument. And when I got home, my mother was waiting for me. I mean, just because you don't talk outside the family. She came over with her fists and just started punching me in the face. I mean, anywhere, and I was just blocking it, her just punching me like a boxing match. And I remember just kind of curling up in a fetal position against the wall. And her just kicking me and kicking me and screaming, you don't tell anybody what goes on in this family. To the point I had to wear long sleeve shirts to school for two or three weeks for the bruises because mom didn't want anybody to see the bruises. You know, I watched that and um... You know, when you release an album, there's an, ex there's an expectation of press, of PR, of, of spending time with magazines and radio stations, and you kind of, you share the story of your project and how you wrote the songs and the producers and all the different things. When the film came out, I was honestly really concerned for you because now you're having to share your life, the, the hardest parts of your life at every press junket, at every radio station, at every church, at every, has... Has sharing your story been a healing thing, or has it been, is it difficult to relive this every other day as you're doing ministry? Uh, sharing it, um, I, I was really, I felt under a mandate from God to do this. And so I felt like I was following his instructions to tell my story and five six years ago i was just really started feeling impressed by him tell your story it will bring me glory if mm. you tell the story mm. and all of it not right. just you know uh this and the glamorous and all that mm. but just talk about your failures and your struggle and your pain and how i met you at every turn in your life mm -hmm. to keep you moving in the right direction even when you were sinning and falling flat on your face mm -hmm in a hotel room drunk, mm -hmm. he was there. Right. And I, it just didn't compute in my mind. Right. You know, it just didn't compute that, that he would be there with me because they told me that God did not like me mm -hmm. when I would sin in their mind. What there was. And see, I, I served that O-line Pentecostal God till I was 33. Yeah. And so I didn't like myself. They taught me not to like myself. Mm -hmm. um, and growing up with that uh, every day, you're not worth the bullet to shoot you with. You're not worth the salt that goes on your bread. And you'll never amount to anything. Mm. That was daily given to me and my brothers. And so there is such a hole in your bucket yeah. for love and acceptance. Right. And, and you're worthy. And for, you're worth it. For the people who identify with that, what you're talking about right there, mm -hmm. that are sitting in this audience, what would you say to them right now who they grew up with that daily as well? What's a, what would you say? Well, a friend of mine uh, years ago um, saw what was going on, and, um, and it took a long time for me to be honest and talk to people about what was really going on inside of me because I knew if, if you tell them what's really going on, I'll be thrown out again like it was when I was 12 that they would walk away from me, they would reject me, yeah. and, and, and then there is this bucket that um, 
that's got a hole in it, and you think, if people like me, then I must be okay. And so I became a people pleaser, you know. I, uh, I wanted everybody to say, this is the greatest guy in the world. And if you think I'm worthy, then maybe I am. And, but the, they would pour it in and pour it in, and my wife would pour it in and pour it in, but the bucket was just empty um, so quickly. But you win awards, like, like Michael W. just said, and, and you keep thinking, I will reach a place where I'm worthy. Mm -hmm. And I remember one time a therapist told me, how many Grammys do you have to win to realize you're okay? Right. Um, you know, how many Dove Awards do you have to win to realize, you know, you're fine. You don't need any more. Yeah. It's not doing the trick. Um, but it, it was, it was uh, I was caught in a trap and I didn't know how to get out. Mm -hmm. First of all, I did not tell a soul what was going on with me. And you talking about living in guilt and shame, but... I remember, I don't know if you, if I go start going into the story and it's on the, okay, it's right. on the thing, stop me. But I was in New York. Well, yeah. Is that on We that? are going to show that in the next clip. Yeah, I was, well, I was going to, before you set that up, yeah. let me, you know, one of the things I know about addiction and about, it, 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 it comes out of depression. Yeah. It comes out of just trying to silence those voices like you talked about and, and running from the history or from the past of some way. And, and one of the things that I've, different friends have used um, is it's sort of alcoholism or drug abuse can be sort of like a slow suicide. It's that, that depression is so much that you just don't care anymore. You're ready to give up. And, uh, yeah, you, you guys talk about, uh, you talk about that very thing and kind of how you got into the addiction in one of these clips. Why don't we look at the depression clip? I would put this mask, hold this mask up of what people wanted to see. Behind that mask was an Auschwitz survivor that was skin and bones that nobody loved because nobody knew it. Um, and so I lived holding this image up and dying on the inside. And when I would come home off the road or whatever from a award show, I'm still empty, you know. And angry. And angry. He had his times when he was moody, which I now recognize as depression. Lots of times he would ask me to pray for him. He would say, the devil's really after me. Well, I know now that he was struggling with depression even then. So the awards weren't doing it. And I'm just like, yippee, I get a pretty dress and we're gonna go to the Grammys. And he would be there and then it was over and he would go back into that place again. And it was, um, it was literally <laughs> the best of times, the worst of times. The career was at its zenith and he was going away. I would go through, um starting in my early 20s, bouts with depression. When you're in depression, you're alone in your head. And there's been some times through my adult life that it has scared her because I am paralyzed with uh, no feelings. I'm numb and... Unreachable. And there are times I would just sit and stare at a wall. And the crazy thing about it is alcohol makes that worse. Teach me to forgive Letting go of hurts I hide behind Facing all the things in me That I've buried so deep inside As your healing love Brings all of them to light And I was so unhappy Dealing with depression 
and you're standing there saying, boy, he's the luckiest guy in the world. But my heart was dying, I was dying. Because I didn't know what to do with all this rage and this pain and this hurt. And it held me captive. I was in New York with Tori. It was July when we were there and it was so hot. But there was a Heineken in the fridge. And so I just popped it and Tori and I were talking and, and, and I was drinking this like a Coke. And all of a sudden I started feeling something. And so I had another one and I drank all three of them and all the pain went away. All the voices went away. And for the first time ever in my life, my brain was quiet. And I really thought, this is a miracle. I can live this way, because I don't hear the voices anymore. I wasn't a partier, I didn't, I never drank around anybody, but I liked the way it made me feel. It numbed me, and I didn't feel the pain anymore. And I remember thanking Jesus for this. I was sucked in so fast. But it's so funny from the get-go, I started hiding it. And after a short amount of time, it turned on me. It began to increase the pain because there's so much guilt. That was the start, hiding, lying, covering it up, but needing a drink every day. You start drinking earlier because of the hangovers and you're sick. But I had disliked me, but now I began to hate me. I hated what I became. I hated that I couldn't quit and I would try. You know, I, I would go maybe two weeks, but the draw was too great. I will say, as soon as he started drinking, he started drinking alcoholically in the sense that it never was about the taste, it never was about sipping a glass of wine, it was about getting numb as quickly as possible. By the time it really was out of control, I read all the symptoms as our life was blowing up, our marriage was blowing up. I couldn't see that it was alcohol because I wasn't seeing him drunk. He was moody, he was angry, turned, completely turned inward. We did a tour. I watched that clip and I, I, I get emotional. Um, family members that have struggled with addiction, um, I resonate. I think anybody in here who has friends or family who struggle with that, have struggled with that, resonate um, that that depression led to trying to medicate the depression, led to the drinking or the drug abuse or whatever the case may be. And it, and it causes, like you said, more shame and this just continual downward spiral. Um, what would you say to somebody that's even sitting in the audience today that's, that's got some secrets? They look pretty good here this morning, but they've got some secrets back home and, and what would you encourage them to do today with those? Well, I, I would say probably 90% of the people in here have secrets. Yeah. And we are so terrified that somebody might find out. Yeah. And we live in fear that we might be found out. Uh, maybe 90, maybe that's too high. I, I, I don't know. Or not high enough. I don't know. I don't know. But you get caught in this cycle of the shame and the guilt and if people find out. You know, I, you know, my life will be over because they won't let me come anymore, mm -hmm. and they will, they will ostracize me, or you know, they would see me as a person that with that's failing. Um, 
But let me just step back just one second. In 1956 or 57, I'm trying to remember, the, America, uh, the American Medical Association declared alcoholism addiction as a disease. It fits all the criteria of a disease. And for the longest time, I, was, I thought I was a, a bad person trying to get good when the truth of it was I was a sick person trying to get well. Mm. And, but you internalize everything. But what I would say is the first thing I had to do, and I'll just talk about me, mm -hmm. uh, is to tell somebody. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, you're, you're holding it, and, and it's like this real strong electric current that you're holding in your hand, and you hold it close to you, mm -hmm. and it's shocking you and shocking mm -hmm. you and so shocking you, but you won't let go of it. You wow. know, and you're afraid to let go of it. Mm -hmm. You're afraid to let somebody find out. And that is a horrible way to live. And I did most of my, you know, young life that way uh, right. of just hiding and hiding. But I remember um, telling somebody that I trusted. And I knew I could trust them because their life had been blown up and God had put it back together. Mm -hmm. And I knew they wouldn't judge me. Right. And I risked, I risked, I have to tell mm -hmm. somebody right. to get it, you know, to a situation that's bigger than me and I need your help. Mm -hmm. I can't fight this by myself. Right. And I'm afraid for you to find out and, and I'm afraid for other people to find out. And, and you don't have to tell everybody, mm -hmm. but just that one person, right. one person that you can just say, hey, man, I'm really fighting this. Yeah. And I need, you know, I, I just want to say it out loud. Yeah. Because saying it out loud breaks its power by, by 50%. Absolutely. Just saying it by, but when we, we're holding that s secret, um, and, and every day it is sticking knives in us, yeah. you know. It's like cut by a, or killed by a thousand cuts. Right. Um, and, but when we can just find one person, just yeah. one person. It makes me think of the, the James 5.16, if we confess our sins. Uh, you know, to each other, you know, he'll heal us. And, and uh, confess, I just think that's, if, just think if the church could become that place in our small group communities where we could honestly live authentically with our struggles and our doubts and our fears and our questions. And that's what the church has to become if we're going to be the people that God wants us to be, you know, I think. Um, let, me, let me just say too yeah. real quick, and maybe it started with the Puritans when they came over. You know, because they had such strict rules, mm -hmm. strict rules you had to live by. And if yeah. you didn't, they, you know, were thrown out by yourself. Right. Uh, but it, it's like when God gave the Ten Commandments for the next generations and generations, they were adding more to it, adding yeah. more to it to where God just gave Ten Commandments, but they had 6,000 <laughs> things that you could or couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And I think so many times that's what we do. You know, uh, God says, do you want to be free? And can I tell that real quick? Sure. This, this is one of the things that I found out about me. Because <clears throat> I would fast and I would pray. You know, I'd be in a hotel room crying and praying and begging God to help me. And I'll do anything. I'll do it, you know. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know what to do. And right. I wouldn't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. But I read, uh, I think it's in Mark. Um, Mark, I think where Jesus was going to the pool and there was a crippled man there. 
And he was calling out, and Jesus walked over to him and said, the strangest thing I thought was, would you be made whole? <laughs> would you? And I would go, of course he would. But I, then I began to see what Jesus was saying was, if I healed you, mm. you can't sit here and beg anymore. Mm. Something's got to change. If I heal you, you're going to have to start being responsible to your wife and your kids. Mm. If I heal you, you're going to have to get a job. Mm and become part of society and part uh, of the synagogue. If I heal you, will you be made whole? That's good. And for me, I said, God, I will do anything. Mm -hmm. I'm at this point of desperation that either I'm going to die mm -hmm. uh, or, or, or I, I want to live. And I remember I broke in, in Memphis uh, by the convention center. I was in the convention center. We were playing the small thing, and I was laying on, on the floor of the dressing room and just begging God, kill me or heal me. Mm. I can't live this way anymore. Right. Um, you hate yourself so much. I used to try to shave and not look myself in the face mm. because I hated me. You know, and you can have 10,000 people saying how wonderful you are mm -hmm. and applause you, applaud you every time you go to work. Mm -hmm. But if you don't think you're worth it, right. it don't mean nothing. Right. But when he said that, will you be made whole? Mm -hmm. It's like, here's a path here, and yeah. it's going to require everything you have to get better. Absolutely. Will you pay that price? Will you do that? Uh, has you know, sharing things with friends or whatever, there's that feeling of just freedom, like, oh, now somebody knows. And I, have you sensed that freedom? Has God given you that freedom to just, you've been so transparent. It's like, I got, you got nothing on me. I've told you everything, you know. Has there been a sense of God's freedom in your heart and your life as a result oh, of sharing something? Oh, well, man, you know, and the good thing about getting older uh, is you don't care what people think anymore. Right. You know. I used to work so hard for y'all to love me, and, and, uh, and you did. Thank you very, very much. Um, but if you don't love yourself, yeah. and by doing the next right thing, and the next right thing, yeah. you start getting your, your, uh, um, uh, you, you start getting your uh, security back yeah. and belief in yourself. If you just keep doing the next right thing, and you may take one step forward and two steps back, three steps forward and two steps back. Mm -hmm. But the thing, and what Gloria Gaither says about me all the time when I'm around them, she says, Russ, what I love about you is you never gave up. Right. You never gave up. You right. would get up and keep fighting, get up and keep fighting. Right. But, uh, you know, that's the thing that's laid before us. Mm -hmm. And to tell somebody that's life has been put back together by Jesus, they'll understand what you're going through. And right. they will not tell anybody and they won't judge you. Right. Um, but that's the start. Are you still going to AA meetings? Oh, Absolutely. Have you sponsored anybody? Absolutely. <laughs> Love that. Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, what that is, AA meetings is, is, is it was like seven-day Adventist. We do things just a little bit. No, <laughs> <laughs> it's different. No, but it's, it's a meeting place for people that's struggling with addiction. And we remind each other every time we go is that one drink is too many and 20 is not enough. And one slip can start this cycle all over again. Mm -hmm. And I go to remind myself that, that I can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. I can't mess with it anymore. And, 
and I'm starting to really like me, you know? And that's been the most transforming thing for me is that I think I'm a pretty cool guy now. I mean, I'd like to be my friend. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, uh, um, you, you talk about um, in the film and do such an amazing job, you and Tori both, of sharing your, your experience in your heart. Um, I want us to take a, a watch one more clip if we can at least. Um, just as you share about the marriage and really more she shares some of the struggle with it and the hope that God has given you guys in your marriage. There was morning. finally a point I called Matt and said, okay, Matt, we've talked about alcoholic tendencies. We've talked about alcoholic behavior. We've talked about alcoholic patterns. Am I dealing with active alcoholism? And there's this pause and he said, yeah. Yeah, honey, you are. I remember sitting there thinking, I'm married to an alcoholic. Russ is an alcoholic. Russ is an alcoholic. Being the mom of the alcoholic is one of the hardest things ever. And so for a mom especially, it's so hard not to preach. The shame and the guilt make you want to hide and make you want to hide from the people that you love because those are the people you want to please. And those are the people you want to be proud of you. And if they knew, well, surely they're not gonna love you either. He turned in and it was dark and it was very selfish and self-involved. And the self-involvement becomes um, pathological. Mm -hmm. And I hated what I saw and I hated who he was becoming and I was furious. I felt like I got gypped. What the heck? I was furious and I was, I didn't even waste it on God. It was all aimed at him. So there was a lot of anger to go around. Alcoholism addiction is a family disease. They don't live in a vacuum and their behavior doesn't happen in a vacuum. And he didn't heal in a vacuum. When Tori and I were going through a real bad place, I came home and I stayed here, I don't know how long, just trying to figure out, you know, what do I want to do? Do I want to live the rest of my life drunk and die? Or do I want to serve God? This was not what she'd signed on for. This was not the husband that she loved and adored, and it was creating problems. He was withdrawing from her the same way. I think at one point she said, I've had enough. I don't know what to do, and this is not the way I want to live. And I kept saying, that's not who you are. Mm -hmm. That's not who you are. And he was telling me, yes, it is. I would say I'm a Taft. That's what Tafts do, is they screw up. And I was just so tired. I was so tired. I just remember feeling bone weary to the marrow of my soul weary. I went through every gamut, the entire gamut of, of everything that every person who's ever been lied to in the world does. It's a betrayal. It's, it's furious. How stupid do you think I am? I trusted you. I, all of that. And then the worst part of it to me was that it makes you doubt yourself. I'm sure it killed her to be Russ's companion and experience the walls of secrecy. Every woman who has ever had a man that was putting up a wall feels like she's going crazy. 
And the wall can be for anything, infidelity, addiction, workaholic. In 12-step programs, they say that an alcoholic does what an alcoholic does. And we add the to me. And it all felt like it was he was doing it to me. I'm in this marriage. It's happening to me. Tori said it best when she said addiction is a family issue. And, you know, sometimes we, we focus on the one with the addiction, but the fallout around that person can be so great. And um, you and Tori have shared so vulnerably and so incredibly beautifully. Um, what would you tell somebody here who's walking through an issue of recovery in their own marriage, just from the marriage standpoint, they're struggling? They, you know, is there is, I see in this film especially, hope. I see you guys, uh, just the way you look at each other, you're twirling her around and you're loving on her and she, there's just, there's joy, there's, there's life. You date again, you said, and you, you, there's just a, a sweetness in your relationship again. What would you say to somebody who's really just, they're tired from the addiction and, and, and to give them hope for their marriage and for that relationship? First of all, let me say, Tori is so hot. She's just amazing. <laughs> Tori has always said for the last years and years and years that the reason that she stayed married to me is because I owned it mm -hmm. and said, I did it. Yeah. It's me. I did it. I didn't blame anybody. I didn't blame my parents. Um, I, I, because when you suffer with addiction, and, and one alcoholic affects at least 30 people, one alcoholic affects almost 30 people uh, in the family, outside the family, friends, and, uh, but what I would say to someone here in their marriage is that I stopped lying. And you hate yourself because you lie, but you lie to protect the, the, the addiction. Mm -hmm. And you're horribly ashamed. And, uh, uh, and the cat's out of the bag now. And, uh, and she had already seen a lawyer. And I didn't know if, if, if she even wanted to stay. And I was starting to get sober and working really hard at it. But when we would talk, I would say, yes. Yes, I did. I did that. And I did that. And I can't even say I'm sorry anymore because I've said it 10,000 times. And she didn't believe me when I said it. But I begin to find ways I could act uh, to let her know I didn't want her to leave. And I, I'm talking about the basic things of like asking her if I could take her to a movie. Because hmm. there was a period of time, almost six months, that she didn't want me in the house. I mean, she had just had enough. And uh, I had made 10,000 promises. Um, but I wanted to be well more than anything now. I wanted to be well because you hate yourself and you feel trapped, but, and it took a while. It wasn't like a week and a half and we were, you know, happy, joyous and free again. It took years. 
several years for her to trust me, mm -hmm. just to trust me to leave the house. Because for so many years, I would leave the house and I would come back with alcohol on my breath. And she would collapse again. And, and uh, uh, but she had to see, not hear. I had used up all my words. I had blown past, you know, 10,000s. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'm sorry. Um, but every day was a new day to try to reach out to her and let her know without words that she's on my mind and she's valuable to me. And I want her near me, and I will do whatever it takes. Mm. And I mean whatever, not, you know, and you can't be so selfish that you think she should just jump back because you're trying to get sober for, the, you know. It doesn't work that way. They have been lied to. Mm. Uh, they have been uh, put out of the circle, mm. and they are a source of guilt for you. And so you stay away mm. because every time you're around them, you feel horrible that they see you and they see you as a weak person and they see you as, as, as a child that can't get his life together. And uh, when I was around her, it would just magnify how, how rotten I had become. And so the first thing was, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay sober for a month. I'm gonna stay sober. And then after that month, well, it starts with one day. And she saw me going to meetings. She saw me doing the next right thing. She saw me working and meeting with a sponsor is somebody that's older in the program than you are, that they kind of guide you through your sobriety. And there is steps in the big book, they call it. Uh, uh, the Bible is the book and AA manual is the, uh, the big book. Um, or vice versa, I don't remember. But, you know, she saw me doing what I could mm. that day, mm -hmm. that day. And mm -hmm. I would not tell her what I did just so she, I, I could get her approval. And I wanted it so bad because I hated myself so much. But see, any outside thing coming in, it doesn't do anything. It's gone in a second. Because uh, I remember how I was with, with, with the Grammys, and I finally stepped going, stopped going, because it didn't feel a need anymore. Mm -hmm. But what I would say to a couple that you are trying to figure this out is, first of all, you've got to be completely honest. You know, um, yes, I did that. Yes. And, and I'm not talking about things that would really hurt right off the bat. I, I, you know, I'm just talking about the basics of, you know, I screwed up. Yeah. I, I, uh, and, you know, without saying a word, you're doing the next right thing. You're, you know, you're going to meetings and you're meeting with other alcoholics and you're going to Shoney's to drink coffee. That it's over. And eventually she began to see me starting to change and doing things that, I'd never done before, or years, I haven't done in years. Um, and that gave her an incentive to stay. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I didn't have many, cho many uh, forgiving points left. I'd worn them all out. But when she saw me seriously uh, working hard, 
-hmm. working hard. Then she would start it after a while. She started letting me hold her hand again. And for me, that was a major thing mm -hmm. because when that hand is gone, mm -hmm. you will give anything you would, if you could just have it back. Mm -hmm. But they can't trust you. So uh, for her to, to let me sit beside her and go to dinner and talk, uh, and I didn't go on and on and on about, you know, how good I'm doing. I let my actions speak. I'm talking about this a whole lot because it's so good. important. But I know for me, and this is just me, uh, I don't know how you are, but she was my last, she was my last chance before being just going out into oblivion. And I really felt like if I lose her, I'd lose it all. I didn't care about my career anymore. I didn't care about music that much. My desire was her and to making her feel safe, keeping my word, doing things that would, that would help around the house where she felt my presence there. Mm -hmm. But at that point, I, I, I wanted her more than anything. I wanted her more than, than the drug or the alcohol or whatever. I wanted her. Mm -hmm. Because she reminded me of what I used to be because I'd forgotten. Mm -hmm. She reminded me of the anointing that would come on me when I would sing. I'd forgotten. She reminded me how important music was to me and how it moved my soul because I had forgotten. I was two people. I was this person that was an alcoholic. And when they would introduce me, I would change roles. I would become this gospel singer and I would walk up on stage. And every word I said about Jesus I meant, even though I was far from him, and then I would walk off that stage and I would take on the mantle of this person that needed a drink so bad he was shaking. But Jesus. But Jesus. But Jesus. But Jesus. Jesus. When I got my relationship right with him and I saw all through my recovery, he was there pulling for me and there were times I was alone and desperate but when I got sober I could look back and I would see his hand keeping me from falling into the abyss encouraging me come on Russ come on mm. there it was a thing that happened between Jesus and I when I was 12 and I couldn't talk outside the family but Mama had a key to the church when they threw Daddy out, and I couldn't talk to anybody either. But I would, uh, when everybody would go to bed and Daddy would pass out, and Mom would sit in her rocking chair and cry, I would sneak out, and I would go down to the church at 12 and 13, and it went on until I left home. 
but I would unlock the door to the church, and it was black in there. And when you're 12 years old, a dark church is so scary. Uh, and I would feel my way to the front, and there was a little lamp on a desk. And I would kneel at the altar, I would sit at the altar, and I would just dump all this on Jesus. And I would tell him how scared I was. And I told him how lost I was. And I would beg him for his help. And I did that night after night after night when there was so much chaos. So much chaos. Then I turned to him. And through the years of alcoholism, and I hated myself. But I was used to being in chaos and talking to him. And I did. Until finally, I was able to stop. And I felt his presence drawing me, drawing me. And when I got back to him, it was like an old friend. It was like, thank you. Thank you for helping me. Thank you for bringing me home. Yeah. Thank you for saving my family. Yeah. Thank you for helping me do things that would prove to her that she's worth everything to me. And it's all these years later, and I still cry about it because it was so real, and it is so real. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we just give up before the miracle happens. <laughs> and that's what they say in all, AA all the time, is like, don't give up before the miracle happens because it's going to happen. Amen. You will get sober. Amen. You will get well if you keep doing the next right thing. Amen. But... Uh, Anyway. Well, you know, I was going to tell you before we close here, um, a few years ago, if you had asked me, is there anything I love about Russ Taft more than his voice? I'd be like, no way. But there's no question today, I love your heart, your relationship with Jesus, even more than your voice. And you have led us for so many years as somebody who seeks Jesus, wants to know him, wants to love him, and yet is dealing with a broken past and a broken present and questions and imperfections, and yet here still today, you are leading us confessionally, you're leading us transformationally, and I, as I was thinking about you, I couldn't help, we put this on the card that you got when you came in this morning, I couldn't help but think about this verse, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, I'm going to read it to you, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You have done such an amazing job as just a child of God, as somebody who loves Jesus, that that authenticity of saying, I own this, this is my mistake, I've done that, that teaches us to own it. And it's what's walking ahead of us in that way. And in the same way, you doing so is comforting us and drawing us out of the hide, hiding places, the secrets, uh, to be honest before the Lord. And then to say, God, you're going to use the brokenness in my story. And you're going to use the brokenness of what's going on in me so that I can be a blessing to someone else the way Russ has been to me. Isn't that good?
Don't you see that in his life? Uh, I'm sure he'll share more about this tonight, but I know the, the movie hopefully is going to come out, you said maybe in March, yeah. uh, maybe on DVD or Netflix or some other places. And yeah, it, it will, um, uh, I, I think uh, Amazon Prime or Netflix will, will pick it up and, uh, and they may show it in the theaters one more time. Great. I, I don't know, but they're talking about uh, the spring, okay. March, April, that it will be released. And the book is coming out when? February 12th, I think. Okay, so he and Tori have a book coming out. It's going to be great. We want you to know about that as well. Um, and of course, you have a new project out that was released just a couple months ago. March the 2nd. And um, it was released in March? No, 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 no. It was just released, wasn't it? Back December, in December 2nd. Yeah, December. So it's a brand no, November, new project. November 2nd. November 2nd. It's a brand new project. And what's great about it is, is a dear friend of mine helped produce it, and, and, and what they did is they took some of the great old songs and combined it with some amazing new songs of worship, and uh, you, he'll be sharing some of that tonight in concert. So if you got to be here, but let me say, you probably need to come early enough to make sure you have a seat, because we don't know what to expect. Doors will be open at 6, don't come before 6, but from 6 to 7, you can come in and have a seat. And we will start the concert at 7, and I guarantee you God is going to continue to bless your heart and your life uh, in a continuation of what he's already started this morning, I have no doubt. Can I, can I just inject before we Please. close how this whole thing was, I was blindsided by God. I wasn't out looking for a documentary. Uh, you know, I, I was making this new record with Phil uh, up in Sweetwater in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and we've been working on it maybe a year. Um, and I knew that I, I felt the Holy Spirit telling me to tell your story. I want to encourage my body to get honest. Mm -hmm. And that way I can heal them. Uh, but and then because of the documentary, uh, they took uh, Tori and they took a lot of our interviews and stuff like that and made a book. But we didn't think about joining them. I mean, I thought Tori and I would write a book maybe four years from now, something like that, and tell the whole story. But they came to me and asked me to do the documentary, if they could, and Phil Nash asked me if he could do this record, and a book company asked us if we would write a book. But all of a sudden, they all kind of came out at the same time. <laughs> It, it floored me. I, I mean, the, you know, when God is doing something, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, all, all these great people try to take credit, but he just ordained all of this, and I'm just sitting back watching him going, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord. Uh, but it all comes down to your relationship with Jesus because you can't do it by yourself. Yeah. If, if you don't have his help, you'll never make it. Yeah. You, you just won't because he is that thing that holds it all together. Mm -hmm. And uh, But anyway, thank you. Yeah, you made a comment in the green when we were talking. You made a comment before we, we close here just that this new project is less about writing about all those experiences and more about just saying, thank you, Jesus, and just worshiping him and just lifting him up. And I can't think of anything better this morning for us to kind of wrap up today out of the conversation of brokenness, 
out of the conversation of uh, coming out of our secrets and you sharing that and leading us in that way for you to sing a song and just lead us to the Father and praise him for his goodness. Would you sing one more song for us before we go? Absolutely. We love you. Thank you for your sharing all that you do, brother.